Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical political, economic, and social freedom. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. I sometimes hear market anarchists say that anarcho-capitalism isn't anarchism. This claim, and the disagreements about the nature and values of a free society underpinning it, raises a lot of fascinating questions about liberty, radical liberalism, the characteristics of capitalism, how you even define that term, and the broader movement for liberty. My guest today is William Gillis. He's a fellow at the Center for a Stateless Society and one of the most interesting writers out there on radical politics. We talk about freedom and coercion, the legitimacy of power, the role of privilege in political action and inaction, and the ways the culture and incentive structure of the mainstream liberty movement make it less effective, principled, and radical than it should be, and sometimes even lead liberty advocates to become apologists for the status quo. Before we jump in, I want to remind you that you can get every episode of Reimagining Liberty two weeks early, along with other perks, by becoming a supporter of the show. Head to reimaginingliberty.com slash subscribe to learn more. Now, here's my conversation with William Gillis. What's wrong with anarcho-capitalism? <laughs> uh, well, um, depends upon the the the, the flavor, um, but uh, because you can have those that are merely misguided about capitalism and those that are quite strongly misguided about anarchism. <laughs> um, so that that's a typical uh, old joke to you know say that there are anarcho-capitalists that are um, you know, naive and temporarily uh, confused anarchists, and that there are anarcho-capitalists who are uh, something much worse than that, um, and at least sincere in their in their um, in their love of capitalism. And it, you know, here capitalism, as I think most of the world has used the term, uh, as most people I think intuitively kind of like understand and appreciate it, um, but there is a, a significant portion of people who disagree or who use the term to simply mean free markets here um, I'm using capitalism to you know basically stand for the rule of capital over labor um, the large capital concentrations that um, make up our present economy um, and much of the world and much of what is called capitalism um, you know a situation that is deeply predicated upon centuries of state violence and intervention in the market and control over the market and establishment of certain toy markets and, uh, you know, uh, basically enslaved markets, um, uh, or, you know, economic situations where market activity is at best, um, peripheral or takes a subservient position or provides only limited, uh, course correction around the, the margins of the periphery. Uh, so in that sense, you know, that we can, you know, we can say that there's a, there's a dispute over the, the, uh, over the semantics of what capitalism is, but I'm not particularly, um, and that's where a lot of discussions around anarcho-capitalism and critiques of anarcho-capitalism from left market anarchists have, has historically, um, you know, defaulted on, but I'm not particularly interested in fighting over semantics. Um, you know, I'm happy to use different terms in different contexts, at least in private conversations with certain people as they, you know, prefer. So if, if they, in, in, in their private language, you know, or their personal language or their, their, their language of their, their small community, capitalism 
is merely freedom of association in the economic sphere, then okay, cool, then I'm pro that. Um, and I'm happy to use that term in conversation with them in the same way that like for some people, communism literally just to them means freedom of association in the economic sphere. And so I'm happy to use, you know, communism in that context with that person. I think that there are reasons why we shouldn't see to those definitions on the whole, but I'm, I'm not so, you know, I, 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 I think it's not so productive to get hung up on those semantic and strategic decisions around language. However, anarcho-capitalism is not just, um, it's not just you know, anarchism plus capitalism, <laughs> right? It's, it's a distinct tradition and movement. Um, and unfortunately, in a lot of ways, it tends to be, um, to have very little contact with anarchism, both as like a prefigurative practice and movement, a living movement and body of, you know, hundreds of thousands and, and historically millions of people around the world engaged in a variety of different, um, you know, utopian and, uh, utopian practices and experimentation, as well as a variety of different forms of, of active resistance and struggle against power. Um, and not only is anarcho-capitalism almost completely disconnected from that, um, intentionally, um, in, in, in a variety of historical, uh, points and reasons, uh, anarcho-capitalism is also just like disconnected from the values of, of anarchism. If anarchism is, um, objection to power as a whole, as I would put it, or domination as a whole and all forms of domination, anarcho-capitalism has, for a variety of historical reasons that maybe we'll get into, um, diverged from that and gotten very mono-focused upon a very limited, very, you know, tiny sliver of things, um, uh, in particular things that can be, in, in their mind, easily measured um, or easily recognized. So very ostensible, direct, immediate forms of coercion and violence, um, somebody with a gun pointed to your head, um, and the state. And that's basically it. Um, and so, you know, they, they earn points for recognizing that, you know, the IRS asking you to pay your taxes is, you know, it doesn't involve a lawman with a gun pointed at your head most of the time. Um, and that there is some broader context and, um, uh, distribution of the coercion in that system. But they fail to understand, um, or fail to appreciate the importance of and or have a general extreme timidity around the implications of recognizing violence, coercion, and domination, which is not quite the same thing as violence and coercion, can be much more extensive um, in the vast variety of other places that it exists in everyday human life. Well, let me, I mean, let me follow up on some of that to kind of unpack. Putting myself in the mindset of one of my listeners who would say, consider themselves potentially an anarcho-capitalist and came to it from the readings of anarcho-capitalism I did when I was working in libertarian circles and so on, they might – I think they might recognize some of the critiques you're making, but they might be a bit confused by others. And so let me see if I can tease some of those out or clarify. Um, so we'll start with the the coercion in the state, and it seems like – you know, I too have have gotten frustrated when libertarians or anarcho-capitalists seem to think that the only kind of relationships we should worry about are 
relationships of like a Weberian state and the rest of us say uh, and and that any other relationship that happens outside of strict state coercive freedom is either fine so it's like it's like morally okay or it is none of our business like we might you know have internal but we shouldn't even really express them and i have been i have been like criticized for taking positions on things when i was say working at the cato institute publicly that were not related to state action or inaction because it was like you shouldn't talk about that right which is always a little bit weird to me um but it does seem like that a crux of their argument and you read people like you know friedman on this or rothbard on this and kind of the crude understanding of them is first that state coercion is what really really matters because it is like qualitatively categorically different from other kinds of coercions because it is the violence coupled with a a claim to legitimacy as opposed to violence which exists you know all over the place but we don't tend to think of as legitimate and that therefore makes it like worse and more pervasive and you can get away with it more easily and so on and so we should if not exclusively care about it that kind of coercion and violence we should potentially care about more or or set as i the priority is the one to to undo first um and then secondly it seems that there is an assumption sometimes stated sometimes not that if we can undo so if we go the full anarchist route right of anarcho-capitalism um if we can undo all of that kind of coercion then the other ones that you and other anarchists are worried about will kind of naturally, if not entirely solve themselves, they will be ameliorated to a, a significant extent because people will be will be wealthier, will be freer to move around, will have more options, and all of those things create ways to kind of push back on it. And so it's not that they're intentionally ignoring it it's that they're saying all of those things are either exclusively or largely symptoms of this one thing and that's what i care about well i do think that there's some oppressions i mean you go to an average ancap forum i mean <laughs> i pull obsessed uh, <laughs> of scum and villainy um and you will find a lot of people outright dismissing certain oppressions and you know, not having any concern with them and not wanting them to disappear. Um, so people who support patriarchy, people who support racism, people who support, you know, transphobia, homophobia, et cetera, various forms of, you know, domination or, you know, oppressive behavior that they want. Um, so I, I don't think that, you know, it's important to note that while there are some ANCAPs who will make the arguments and, you know, folks within the libertarian movement who would make the kind of arguments you're making. It's not entirely reflective of the base, which in many ways is deeply reactionary and pro-hierarchy and domination um, in a number of reflects. And, and, you know, as Rothbard had the um, revolt against, um, you know, equality or egalitarianism uh, as a revolt against nature or whatever, um, uh, they see, you know, there's a lot of folks who want a natural world of natural hierarchies and their notion of capitalism is not efficiency at providing for the needs of everyone um, via the efficiencies of the market. Um, their notion of capitalism is the just hierarchy of 
those who have uh, who merit um you know the giant cruise ship with bitcoin money that they randomly got by betting uh in the crypto uh, markets um those people uh are you know they're uniquely they're unique geniuses they're uniquely genetically superior or whatever and so they should have greater capital should have greater you know, power, et cetera. And that the problem of the state or the problem of, um, all these other things is really holding back the, the natural hierarchical order. Um, so first off there's that. And then, you know, uh, so you talk about, um, so the question of like, you know, whether, uh, whether these, uh, um, these forms of domination or these other, you know, dynamics, there are certainly people who think they will disappear or be severely curtailed, um, limited in their capacity to do harm, um, or that we will simply be in a better place to resolve them, you know, once we remove the state. And that is true. They will, you know, like it, the state is a monster. It, um, it certainly is extensive in so many aspects of our lives uh, around the world. Um, the state Leviathan, you know, monster thing that has been creeping over all uh, peoples of the world um, for, you know, thousands of years and has been metabolizing and metastasizing, and, you know, uh, consuming all um, is certainly an important social dynamic that has compounding uh, feedback, uh, positive feedback dynamics with a variety of other forms of oppression and a variety of other forms of, and, you know, oppression is oftentimes taken in this very, like, um, the left as a whole tends to take it in this very, like, you know, there are these formalized, uh, macroscopic systems of oppression. There is racism, which we mean white supremacy. There is, you know, patriarchy. There are these things. And I, and here, at least I want to talk about oppression in a much more general sense. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> It doesn't matter if there's necessarily structural oppression surrounding, uh, you know, an event or a, a situation. There can still be somebody who is oppressed as a, you know, say chattel slave without that having any correlation to, um, broader societal patterns or things along those lines. I think we would all agree that that person is oppressed in a way that doesn't have to be structurally conditioned, um, you know, by racism or whatever. It can emerge in some completely different in, uh, context uh, and still be oppression. Um, but I, I think that just because the state catalyzes with those things doesn't mean that the state is the only, um, component underpinning them. Um, and the way that I would approach this is to reverse kind of, um, the analysis and say that the state is underpinned in fact by a wider ecosystem that the state is simply the apex predator within. Um, and that ecosystem of power um, and domination and state-like entities, um, but even non-state-like entities, just power dynamics and power relationships, um, uh, is vast. And, um, you know, you can kill the dominant slime mold. Um, but if you have an ecosystem that will completely instantaneously replicate it, um, or that will do the same things that it does, um, regardless, <laughs> Of whether the, the biggest piece of the, you know, the, the, the most, uh, visible single homogenous entity in the ecosystem is there or not, um, then the thing that you're fighting is not the, the, the big showy, um, organism. It's the entire ecosystem of power. Um, and so 
if we, you know, if we remove the state, it, yes, some things become easier. Um, but also the state will just regrow <laughs> if we still have a variety of other forms of domination. I mean, so, um, and, you know, this doesn't have to just be like, uh, what might be offhandedly called cultural forms of oppression, um, like patriarchy, but it can be things like the apportionment of capital. So, you know, even Rothbard recognized that if you privatize the Soviet Union, uh, as his example, or, you know, and into the hands of 20 people, um, you have not really, you know, liberated the people of the Soviet Union. You have not really done away with the state. Um, you have just centralized that capital into the hand, you've like renamed um, the state and, and, and reorganized how it's internally structured, but you have not actually destroyed the state. Um, you, there has to be a certain amount of decentralization in terms of the ownership. Um, and, uh, and it's not, you know, we can start quibbling about like, it's not just decentralization. It's not just the fact that, you know, if you have a Gini coefficient or like a, you know, a distribution that's so unequal that it, you know, okay, sure. We technically give pennies to those on the periphery. We've, you know, we've, we, uh, we privatize the, the Russians, you know, the, the Soviet Union and hand every single peasant a penny. And then the, the Politburo each gets, you know, you know, their percentage of the overall thing. You've still not really solved the problem. And, um, you know, the state is contiguous with, um, a vast, you know, underpinned by and under and helping re, uh, uh, and helping, uh, affirm and, and, uh, grow a wider ecosystem that, if you were to simply remove the ostensible uh, bounds of the, everything that is ostensibly within the bounds of the state and the, you know, the, the legal uh, definition of the state, um, the state would still exist, right? Um, the people, the people who have profiteered from the state, the, all the variety of those other things are still there. And when it comes to, and I think a lot of ANCAPs and libertarians recognize this rhetorically, but there is a marked hesitancy and fear of looking into deeply as to what this actually entails and how much <laughs> um is actually you know the consequence of the state and you know very quickly people start being well okay but once you've once you've passed wealth through a tumbler and you know it's changed hands a couple times it would be so hard to correctly identify and track back the exact origin of every single piece of wealth. So it's impossible to do. So we just have to accept the world as it currently exists. Um, but you know, the same thing could be applied to, um, uh, to the Soviet Union, right? You know, the, the privatization of the Soviet Union could put it in the hands of a very small number of people and then shuffle things around a whole bunch. And then you're like, well, you can never actually return whose property is whose property, all the, you know, the, the exact historical tax records, et cetera, all those things have been destroyed. So we just have to leave things as they currently are because anything else would require insurgency against the existing uh, apportionment of property in the world. And, you know, that is the way of the communists and the revolutionaries and violence and all the things that we hate. So we can't possibly like ever look in that direction or, you know, <laughs> We, we will make perhaps token gestures at it, um, when pressed in an argument, but we'll never actually on our own go out there and pro, and pro, and proactively look for, uh, what that, you know, what that would all entail. Uh, so that's a component. You also mentioned legitimacy, um, which is an interesting thing to focus in on in terms of the state's power. Um, um, you know, that, that is an angle in which people approach it and distinguish the state from everything else, but, um, but I don't really think of legitimacy as all that meaningful. I don't really think that most people, I don't really think that the state is, is reinforced 
so much by the fact that everyone thinks it's it's like legitimate as it just has that power. Um, its power reinforces itself. And I think it's interesting because there's like two big distinctions that are present in the libertarian corpus of, you know, analysis of the state. One is the, is the analysis of legitimacy of the state, which oftentimes follows conventional political economy and liberal concerns. You know, like, is the state legitimate? How can we establish the state's legitimacy? But I would say that actually more of a conventionally libertarian analysis would be to look at the state in terms of its centralization and the centralization of power and coercion that it represents and the, you know, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the capital effects that it has of that, um, where, you know, small entry, you know, the, the competition is not possible in comparison and the state gets immense benefits from its centralization, um, in leveraging against other people. It can do war so much better. Uh, that I think is probably the, the greater, uh, issue with the state, which is an organizational or structural issue, um, rather than whether people simply like, believe that the state has legitimacy. I think we oftentimes see very quickly that people's belief in the legitimacy of the state uh, evaporates the moment it's shown that somebody can actually make a successful attack upon the state, that the state is actually at risk. Um, you know, like if you go through Iran right now and you were to ask people versus like before the current uprising, like, you know, what is the legitimacy of the state? I think that you would get completely different questions or answers to that because the, the revealed preference, the revealed actual analysis of people is, can we actually manage to, uh, to like defeat the state? Can we actually manage to fight back against it? And that's an organizational question. That's not a, a an abstract philosophical question of legitimacy. I want to pick up on something that you said earlier, because I think that this is, this is an important piece of it that gets underappreciated by a lot of particularly people in, in libertarian or kind of more mainstream liberty movement circles. Uh, and, and that is, you talked about the often the kind of reactionary nature of of ANCAPs, not necessarily in the the hard central core of the theory, but in the conversations they have and what they choose to focus on or not care about or celebrate and so on. And it does seem that ultimately the the quest for robust liberty, whether that is in a fully anarchist direction or it is in like a radically liberal direction or however we want to define these terms, but like genuine liberty for everyone thing is is ultimately like a quintessentially left project. And it's a it's a left project, I think, because the right, the fundamental feature of the right is the reification and maintenance of imagined hierarchies as ultimately either natural or self-serving. So what the right seeks to do is say there are hierarchies, they are real, they are natural, they ought to exist, breaking them down, flattening power and hierarchies and so on is bad. And it can either be bad in a purely like, I'm at the top of these hierarchies, I benefit from them, I don't want my status reduced, etc. Or they can argue for more, you know, society would break down, blah, 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 kind of things. And the thing that I have I noticed a lot is that that is like an that's it's not you could be a a market anarchist without accepting any of that, right? And it's it's almost like it's a blind spot where they don't recognize how kind of reactionary right they are in their thinking and how much it leads to embraces of power and domination 
when things cut against. And so, for example, I was really distressed at how many people in the liberty movement during the George Floyd protests, people who had been very pro like criminal justice reform, yes, the cops do all of this really oppressive stuff. But the moment that there were protests and those protests became unruly, not even necessarily violent, but just disruptive, they were like, well, okay, I am fine with you agitating for your freedom as long as it doesn't basically inconvenience me. Like if you're blocking traffic, you've gone too far. Please just go and vote or something like that. And it was it was distressing, but it spoke to, I think, this kind of cultural aspect to a lot of libertarianism and ANCAP thinking of basically imagining that, yes, we could we could radically scale back the state or we could reduce it to zero. And what that would result in is basically more freedom for me, but still kind of the status quo that I'm comfortable with in terms of distributions of power, distributions of status, distributions of economy and so on. And so we can like imagine it would be great. But I think, as you said, there's this cultural aversion to this would radically change things for me too. And I am, a lot of these people are benefiting from the status quo. Yeah, I mean, I would push back a little bit on the right-left dichotomy that you're making there. I, it's certainly a conventional and very like mainstream and and like respectable one to say that the left is interested in equality and the right is interested in um, hierarchy. Um, and you know, oftentimes the anarchist response is, "Well, where does that leave the focus on liberty?" You know, um, if if you know, neither of those sound like freedom. Um, but I'm not sure that the left is coherent as a concept. I'm not sure that the left expresses a philosophical position. I'm not sure the right expresses a philosophical position. Um, those coalitions are sociological coalitions. They're defined by social forces and, you know, uh, feedbacking effects in terms of the coalitions that are constantly being built and restructured on the ground. So the left, you know, in the 1950s means something very different than the left in the 1990s, today, in the 1920s, etc. Um, and I don't really want to be welded to, a, you know, making claims about, in, in terms of something that's so fluid um, and so socially um, mobile. There's definitely large sections of the left, and I am oftentimes very vociferously hostile to um, the left as a whole um, for... Uh, aspects that uh, are completely at odds with the anarchist project. Um, a tendency towards uh, collectivism, um, looking at things at the macro scale rather than like evaluating and, you know, and, and treating individuals as though they're mere components, um, parts, organs in a larger whole rather than distinct individuals with choice. Um, a tendency towards rooting for the underdog, as you can identify it in any fight, no matter what, um, without any analysis of anything beyond that. Um, these are definitely, and then also a tendency to try to hold whatever political position might hold their coalition together, um, regardless of the coherency of that with the rest of their values or ostensible goals. Um, uh, that's definitely something that, so I, I don't want to get welded to the left-right dichotomy here, but I think that we can do a sociological analysis of why so many people that are pulled into libertarianism um, basically advocate for the status quo. Um, and I think that the simple fact of the matter is that 
libertarianism has been since at least the 1980s, and it's hard to talk of a coherent libertarian movement necessarily really before that when, you know, the LP was a few people in a, in a living room or, you know, uh, when, you know, Brothbard and Ayn Rand were completely isolated, small individuals with a small circle of people around them. Um, it, the libertarian movement has been focused, at least since the 1980s, on recruiting a base of straight white men, um, you know, some deviation within that, but, um, who are typically boys, teenagers, um, who are very interested in feeling intellectually superior, which is fine. You know, you do want to be right about things. Um, but, uh, focused in on, on that audience and, um, and not at all really focus, you know, like everything ultimately ends up serving to reinforce that social base. Um, and so it turned out in 2016, surprise, surprise, that a huge chunk of that base realized they could get the things that libertarianism was promising them much easier by just being straight up Holocaust denying like Nazis, right? Like we watched so many prominent Nazis come out of the, the, the libertarian movement, um, Chris Cantwell, the, the right stuff podcasters, like on and on it goes, these people came out of libertarianism and their critique of libertarianism. I mean, they have like an ostensible ideological critique, you know, oh, you don't understand the nation and the necessity of the collective belonging and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, a lot of these people will at the same time openly admit that race is a complete, you know, falsity that is being made up on the spot in order to facilitate a variety of things and personal power and that they don't ultimately, they don't believe in anything. And Richard Spencer is like, well, there's no principles. It's just power. You know, that kind of thing is, um, when you, when you get right down to it, what they're really going for is I want to feel superior and I want to feel safe and comfortable with the privilege and the power that I have and the conditions and the relationships. And if I can climb higher in a ladder, if I can restructure the ladder of how power dynamics in our society work, then yes, I'm happy to do that. Uh, but you know, I think none of those people were ever into libertarianism, um, for the liberation of all. And I don't think libertarianism in any organizational cultural aspect, um, yeah, organizational cultural aspect, um, I don't think libertarianism was structured or had any interest in recruiting people who were actually sincerely committed to fighting and dismantling power structures and power systems. Um, I think that was a happy accident when it happened for the, for the libertarian movement, um, in, in my estimation, but it certainly wasn't intentional. There was no incentivization process for that kind of thing. Um, and this, you know, I'll lay the blame straight on that, on that, on the heads of not just the, the reason common section rank and file that is just shy of, you know, the racist caricature with a shotgun saying, get off my, uh, get off my property. Um, but it's also on the head of all the so-called so cosmic, uh, cosmic, uh, cosmic libertarians, um, who, uh, we're working in the extended, um, think tank industrial complex, um, because the things that they were interested in were treating politics as a series of like collectible cards. Like we need to collect, I need, you know, like it's almost like they're playing Magic the Gathering, right? Like I need to collect a series of political positions that work well together in this abstraction of, you know, 
of political coherence, which, you know, political and intellectual philosophical coherence is important. But um, in this abstraction, in this abstract space where that is the only thing that matters. Um, and so at a dinner party, you were able to win um, rhetorically and say like, well, you know, I successfully proven that I have the most coherent political position. And I have thought, you know, I have integrated these variety of things. And so don't you know that interestingly enough, uh, legalizing weed and lowering taxes or both, you know, aren't I so special that I've been able to like have this, this, co this small coterie of positions that most people and, you know, defenses of the market, defenses of a variety of different positions that most everyday people are ill prepared to argue against, oftentimes because they are the correct position to have. But, you know, it, it's you, people then are recruited into libertarianism not because they like, not because their hearts like sing at liberation and, you know, are horrified by domination and oppression around the world, not because they're like deeply motivated to try to change and to resist oppression and domination, but because they want to win at the dinner party debate and feel superior. And that was basically what was being sold to, to the youth who were coming into these projects. And the libertarian movement had zero interest in application for actually changing the world. Um, at best, it was writing white, white papers, policy papers that conceivably have some fringe impact in some, in, in a very small number of arenas, but there was no real analysis of social change, no real analysis of, 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 of anything. There were great critiques of bad ways of going about social change. I mean, uh, the, uh, uh, there were great critiques of why you don't want to seize control of a regulatory apparatus like the state and try to impose things. You know, there were, there were great critiques there, but all the critiques were directed in the direction of not doing anything, um, not risking anything, not taking any personal sacrifice. And none was directed in the direction of, of doing so or of, of actually significantly caring about things. And so for decades, you know, for four, for 40 years, the libertarian movement seeded the entire space of activism, the entire space of like students who come into colleges and they want to change the world because they see something incredibly fucked up in the world, whether that's, you know, apartheid in, in South Africa, whatever it is. Um, and most libertarians, I would hope, um, at least when pressed, would agree in principle that apartheid was bad, but they didn't take the lead. In fighting that, they they had zero interest in fighting that. And you look across the board for so many other things. I mean, I, I know this is running a little long in terms of response, but it, the classic anecdote that I always give is my introduction to libertarianism was um, in the day of bombing and the invasion of of Iraq. I was locked down on the Burnside Bridge in Portland with about you know two thousand other individuals in a massive protest uh, against the invasion, and there was one libertarian in that entire situation. Um, and that libertarian was counter-protesting us. He was wearing a sandwich board and he was trying to get up in people's faces and argue and fight with all of the leftist protesters who were putting their lives on the line and taking the beatings from the cops and everything else to try to help save people in Iraq, right? And the libertarian movement, um, in a lot of ways, um, got the Iraq war right, right? Not all of them, certainly. Not everyone who was published in every major journal and the Cosmo, the Cosmo, uh, uh, libertarians got some things particularly wrong or had people who were particularly wrong on, on their camp on this. But like the left, even though 
it was filled with inco- uh, inconsistencies and incoherence, um, showed up in dead stuff. And you can laugh as to whether, you know, shutting down a bridge and impeding traffic was really all that effective at things. Those people actually cared enough to try to do something. And some things that people did, locking down and stopping um, trains filled with uh, material for the military uh, uh, and the occupation, actually did significantly impede operations. Some of those things did significantly uh, do some work, at least, to stop the the, the military-industrial complex. But the one libertarian who showed up showed up on the sandwich board to oppose us because we were so, you know, uncouth as to protest, which is so unelite. And that, yes, well, okay, technically, I suppose I also oppose the Iraq war. But can't you see that you're even worse than than the invasion of Iraq because you're so declassed as to as to actually show up and protest and do a thing? And that individual, you know, like, you know, I had a long, sincere conversation with him. I directed him away from everyone else because he was either, you know, people were either going to get into a fight with him with the level of, like, in-your-face in douchery that he was up to. Um, so I direct him to the side, and I'm pretty pretty good at arguing with people. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to continue to argue with you in the long night while we prepare for the police attacks upon um, the occupation. And, uh, you know, he had some interesting points, some some incredibly valid um uh, challenging uh, points when it came to knowledge and uh, calculation problems. And that has sat in my head ever since then. And he set the corruption in. And, you know, to a lot of standard mainline anarchists, I'm an evil and cap nigh on to a fascist for, you know, thinking that markets have utility and all the other things that uh, set in as a consequence of, the, of that long conversation and me being like, well, okay, I don't know exactly why you're wrong on this, but I'm going to do a bunch of reading. And then being like, oh, well, damn, this actually does uh, resonate with a lot of my experiences in collective organizing, collective decision making and that kind of thing and why these things are actually deeply limited. Um, But, you know, the one the one libertarian who showed up showed up to protest us. And this is just consistent across the board. Libertarians never tried to recruit actual sincerely motivated, like the, the girl with the, the big eyes that says like, but they're killing the whales. Libertarians would sneer at that person. They have zero interest in that person as the enemy to them. But is, you know, like is, is really like, is, is, is caring about animal rights or animal liberation or the environment, are those really like cultural issues that must be consigned to the left right dichotomy? Like not, Traditionally, they don't have to. That those aren't things that are bound towards the right. All it ultimately boils down, and certainly once upon a time, I mean, Nixon passed the EPA. There were all these kinds of different, you know, uh, polarizations and orientations on that that were different. But what the libertarian base and the people ultimately higher up are reacting to is the de- deplorable, declass, earnestness, and the writer with it of, I might have to do something. I might have to sacrifice on my, li- on my life. I might actually be obliged to take action. So let me, let me respond or add color to that um, from the perspective of someone who spent over a decade in like in professional DC libertarian circles. Um, I think there are, I think there are a handful of things going on and I think they speak to, Issues that are are broader than just the narrow confines of how this particular movement responds or doesn't respond to to different issues. Um, so the first is 
and I wrote about this, I've written about this in a number of times, is kind of the the polarization that has resulted particularly over the last 10 to 20 years um, and and the recruiting from largely right-wing sources that you you go to the Federalist Society to find people, you go to the young conservative groups, you never recruit from progressive because they're kind of too far gone, the willingness to overlook deviations like anti-liberty preferences if they run in kind of a rightward direction, but if they run in a leftward direction, then we can't work with you on anything. Like if you're, you know, um, you can if you oppose gay marriage and are in favor of the drug war, we can still work with you on reducing taxes. But if you're anti-surveillance and pro-criminal justice reform, but you also think that we should have a public option healthcare thing, then we can never work with you kind of thing. Um, and and that a lot of that has pushed a lot of, I think, genuinely like committed liberty-minded people. You know, that there's not they're not being dishonest in their their stated principles um, to just basically look with skepticism on anything that smacks of being culturally associated with the left. And so the animal rights, although I have I have heard from a number of people that Ed Crane, the founder of the Cato Institute. Um, one of his hobby horses was dolphin rights, um, so he was he was into that kind of thing. But um, it's if it's something that if it's an issue that the left really cares about, there's a skepticism about it. Or if it's a behavior that is so that that kind of correlates more with being on the particularly cultural left, there's a skepticism about it. So I think that's part of what's going on, and I think it's something that a lot of people just aren't themselves kind of conscious is what's happening. They just mood affiliate with the groups that they happened to come from initially, you know? Well, in the social circles. So like, you know, I've, I've watched a lot of people get who were originally quite progressive in the libertarian movement, just get incredibly brain poisoned by watching Fox news all the time. And it's like, okay, well I check your Facebook and all your friends are on the right. And if you're all your social connections are on the right, then you're only going to come up with, you know, you, you'll think that you understand what the left is saying, but you'll never steel man it and you'll never search for any real steel manned positions for the sort of things that, you know, the, this is a, a notorious bias in like the less wrong rationalist circles. Well, they'll, they'll look for the most extreme steel manned example, they'll hunt, you know, across the frozen wastes and the deserts to find the one individual who will give the best account for the right wing position. And then immediately they'll be like, oh, well, I saw a post on Tumblr one time, so I know the, the yes. left's position. Yes. Um, I, but I want to say – This emerges like – yeah. Well, ahead. I was just going to say the other, the other part of it that I think is important is there was an attempt um, – you, you mentioned the 80s as kind of an inflection point here. And there was an attempt then to take what had been seen as kind of a – a rough and tumble activist movement of burning their draft cards at the Young Americans for Liberty convention and so on and professionalize it, make it respectable, put suits on them so that the people who were in power would begin to take these arguments seriously. And part of that, and this is something that I have objected to, is a is a real focus on Basically, policy analysis and convincing 
lawmakers and regulators to change as the mechanism for political change and often as the exclusive mechanism. And so when you talk about how they weren't out there on the front lines, they weren't out there as activists, I think it's because for a lot of them, even if they're sympathetic to what the activists are doing or to the cause that they're protesting against or in favor of or so on, um, their view is none of that really matters. What matters is sitting in front of lawmakers in Congress, getting your op-eds in the major newspapers so the policymakers are reading them and so on so that ultimately you can change the political system by getting people to vote for different things and instantiate different policies and so on. And a real downplaying of you know, so that is that is one avenue we can use to try to make the world freer, um, and we can see successes in that. Like there have been policy changes that have created more freedom, right? But a real downplaying or ignoring of non-political avenues, non-political engagement in this specific way, avenues for affecting change, and and so it's more like, hey, you protesters out there protesting the Iraq War. You're wasting your time. What you really need to be doing is writing letters to your congressman or getting op-eds published or voting for a different set of candidates and so on because the change change to state policy basically happens from within versus without. Yeah, I mean there's definitely that. Um, I think that that's reinforced by the fact that you know there was a pile of funding that was available and it's not just the octopus, it's like a variety of different things, right? That like, we're willing to pour money upon young activists and provide them with a career path, provided that they basically followed the wishes of the business bureau, right? Um, that they basically did what was good for American business and not all established American businesses. There is a certain degree of like insurgency within the, you know, the, the, the lay of the land, uh, there, but, it was definitely reinforced by the vast capital investments that were willing to be poured in to say, like, let's lower the tax rate. Um, let's push back upon this thing. Um, and, uh, and a complete, well, not, not a hundred percent. There were exceptions, Konkin and, you know, a variety of other individuals, but the libertarian movement as a whole was deeply uninterested in, an analysis that wasn't essentially functionally the minarchist analysis. You could be an ANCAP, but you, your strategy had to be the minarchist strategy, right? Um, and so the idea of if, if you were to take seriously the, the question of the state, take seriously it as an enemy, right? Um, then that implies that you can't really solve it from within the state and that you have to organize outside of the state and that solutions and dangers like the state emerge from the broader, like, ecosystem or base that exists prior to the state. Um, and the libertarian movement didn't want to have anything to do with that. Um, and so, you know, it cultivated a career path um, for a variety of people. Um, I mean, Tucker is kind of a funny example in his book on, on fascism for the brief moment when he was denouncing Trump and the incipient fascism. Uh, he had, uh, he, he mentions this thing where, you know, he's coming up in the eighties, young up and coming, libertarian, um, wearing the suit, doing everything, uh, respectable. And he gets invited out to lunch with one of the funders of the libertarian movement. And he puts the anecdote in the book and refuses to name who she is. But apparently she was a straight up Nazi. 
And she reveals herself to him in, in, while they're out to lunch, assuming that he is as well. And that this is the project that he's obviously involved in, because that's just what libertarianism is supposed to be about, ultimately, when you get past the, the ostensible gloss on top of everything. And, you know, he's like, oh my goodness, well, no, of course not. And then he never names and shames, he never exposes who this funder is, because that wouldn't be genteel, that wouldn't be respectable, that wouldn't be civil. Um, and so she goes to her grave because, you know, according to his account, she's dead now, um, having funded and influenced the libertarian movement internally. And I doubt she's the only one. He implies strongly inside of his book that she's not the only one. And, you know, but it, but even before you get that funding, it's like, how did a young individual like Tucker see the libertarian movement as a space of respectability and genteelness and like, these abstractions and this, all these things, there was a culture that was being built. That culture is very much, you're correct, um, antagonistic or like at odds with the rough and tumble hippie generation. You know, cause when I tell the anecdote of like, oh, well, I was protesting in lockdown against the, the Iraq war that, you know, at libertarian conferences, the, the 60 plus long beard libertarians are like, oh, yes, of course. And then I say, well, a libertarian came up in a sandwich board to counter protest us and they're scandalized. They can't believe it. And everyone younger than them is like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> right. And so, you know, like, I think that the culture of, you know, like people aren't just drawn in by, um, it's not just who the think tanks recruit from. It's not just that they recruit from, uh, you know, the right. It's not that they have their friends on the right. It's that the people, the very, base of the libertarian movement um and maybe this is myself as a younger person assuming that forums and internet conversation that kind of space is like more the the the, the origin of this kind of thing but i think that some of these dynamics have been have been long-standing which is that individuals are gra you know young boys are gravitating towards what they see as like really cool power cards that they can play in a game of conversation and be like well actually my trump card says in fact this and so you've acted my, my, my trap card, et cetera, et cetera. Like I win. Um, and, and solely as a game, solely as like, de, you know, a, yeah. those of us who did debate or that kind of thing, like solely in, in those terms. And there's no traction. There's no actual investment for like changing the world. And there hasn't been for so long. Um, and I think that that, that, that shift happened prior and, collaborative with but in a in a it's a separate dynamic just from the organizational biases and very quickly also the the republicans the the conservative movement was happy to gobble up every piece of rhetoric every card individual you know very discretized separated from everything else so you know if you're an anarchist and you start talking about a critique of the state or a critique of patriarchy or a critique of these things it's very very quickly those critiques look prickly in a way that no one else wants to pick up. Nobody else wants to be like, oh, well, so you're saying insurgency against like the local rapist in your community. I don't, eh, this is not, you know, they, they walk away from those kinds of things because it, there's so much that's intertangled. But the libertarian movement treated each individual position as isolated from one another. So you could be pro-dolphin rights, right? Although I really doubt that, you know, that looked like 
funding Greenpeace or doing direct action, um, raids upon, you know, SeaWorld. I really doubt that that was what was happening. Um, but if you don't believe in electoral change and you don't think the state is ultimately the place that's going to make real substantive changes, then you have to like raid SeaWorld or whatever it is going to be. You have to break the, the dolphins out of captivity, whatever, you know, whatever your strategy is in that situation. It's going to look very different from the electoralist position. So I do think that there was this like, this deep catalyzation across the board that inherently meant that, you know, the right saw libertarianism and still sees libertarianism as a source of winning cards that they can play. And disconnected from everything else because they, you can take or leave. You can be like, I'm pro-abortion, I'm anti-abortion. I'm pro the drug war, I'm anti the drug war. <laughs> I mean, I don't know very many libertarians that are anti, or that are pro the drug war, but I'm certain that some exist because things are, are treated so interchangeably, they're, they're so separably. You can somehow support, um, you know, immigration restrictions and call yourself a libertarian. And the absurdity of that in, in like philosophical terms is just glanced over because sociologically the structure of the movement is, well, they're just separate cards. They're just little pieces that you can collect. They don't mean anything. Um, and so you have the proud boys and straight up fascist movements in this country. Um, individuals who will sig heil one day, same individual sig heil one day. And the next day be like, well, I'm a libertarian. I'm pro weed legalization. <laughs> I mean, it just, everything, like, there's, there's no, there's, there is no, like, there is no skin in the game. And it's, it's really kind of wild that libertarianism failed to recognize the incentive structures of its own movement, even while it had the best analytical framework for analyzing incentive structures and malincentives and, you know, uh, bad information and catalyzing sort of like structures like that. Like it, it failed to analyze that it had no incentive structures to attract anyone that wasn't essentially trying to preserve their own power and privilege. And, and I do think that there are individuals who are sincere enough about the ideals as they are labeled on a card. And there are individuals although typically we tend to win them over to the left Mark anarchist position very quickly and they tend to leave libertarianism, um, there are individuals who are 100% sincere. But I think even the individuals who have all the right positions and entirely coherent, they're correct on immigration, they're correct on, you know, abortion, they're correct on all these things, they have the actual, you know, position of liberty, um, and they care, and they, they like, you know, may sob even as they see atrocities committed, they are unwilling to risk their own personal whatever, their career, their, you know, financial standing, their body, whatever the case may be, they're just unwilling to take that extra action. And with that comes, um, or is, that is tied to very strongly, libertarians' ideological stance towards humility when it comes to action. Um, this fear of doing the wrong thing and that there will be, you know, secondary consequences that you're not predict, uh, you can't predict. Um, and that fear is, you know, not unfounded and very correct when you're talking about the state, but it is, it has been generalized since very early on in libertarianism to be hostile to all forms of activism or social pressures like cancel culture. Like 
cancel culture is the glorious utopia that we were shooting for, right? It was the whole point of internet liberation and giving, you know, oppressed minorities the capacity to speak and then hoping that, you know, they can, like, uh, the idea that rapists get consequences, that, like, people get consequences for being wildly racist in public, the idea that, you know, that, that we can change the norms around transphobia from the awful state that they were in the 90s and beforehand and make it so that, in fact, it's the other direction. If you say something incredibly transphobic, you're run out of the public space. That is, that's the goal of liberty. That's what we were fighting for. Um, that was the whole point of an, that's the, yeah, that's the promise of an open free marketplace of ideas of like, of all these things. And it's antithetical to so many libertarians, right? It's, it's, they see it as literally the opposite of what they were fighting for. Um, and, you know, part of that is because they're trying to protect their own personal whatever. Um, but another component of that is the humility fetishization that thinks, oh, but how can you really say, in fact, that this is a bad thing? How can you really know that? Why would you, why would you care enough about it or know it well enough that you would commit to action or sanction for another person for not believing in it? And that humility just, you know, humility is the, is the, is the nicest way of putting it on the individuals who are sincere, but that the humility of those sincere individuals, like, provides fertile ground and cultivates the individuals who really don't care one way or the other and are not there because they want to change the world for the better because their hearts sing, you know, for the liberation of, 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 of people around the world, people who they don't know, the stranger. Etc. Um, not because they have an expanded circle of care. It's just they, uh, <laughs> like it cultivated that 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 set of people, and that is the problem. And I don't. And I, you know, like I know that your project is to try to like pull libertarianism or liberalism or whatever is left of the more sincere components of um, that movement away from the right and try to like you know see the problems of that long association. But I'm not sure that the institutions and the culture and the social spaces that were cultivated and built in libertarianism are capable of doing what they need to do, which is not just to be more open to a series of cards where, okay, so this person's pro-Bernie Sanders on these things. But ultimately, though, it's more important that they oppose these other things over here, and it's really important that we actually be opposed to racism. It's really it's really important that we actually be opposed to these things. So why not give them a pass for their bad analysis of the healthcare system, right? Um, I don't think it's just a matter of the cards. I think it's also a matter of like there's deep cultural and connected to that ideological tendencies that have built a space where the only people who are attracted to it are people who are not interested in having skin in the game. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you'd like to support the show, get every episode two weeks early, and have access to some other fun perks, head over to reimaginingliberty.com slash subscribe to learn more. 